Welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I am Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. And we help you manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, and international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank, False Claims Act, whistleblower claims, which remain under seal. Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas. Currently, she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee, the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities, second edition, as well as the co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International Business Considerations. She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25, and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. Ms. Rose is an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on the control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available on the side or upper panel of your screen. So, Rachel, thank you so much for being with us today. A very warm welcome. Again, thank you. Catherine, it's always my pleasure to collaborate with you and First Healthcare Compliance. I find the breadth and depth of experience you bring to the table in terms of complimentary questions and what your goal is for your clients to be in line with mine. So. I'm very fortunate to be here, and thank you for the gracious introduction. So today, I'm here to talk about HIPAA Business Associate Agreements under high tech. And before we begin, I need to provide the requisite disclaimer. The information presented is not meant to constitute legal advice. If you have specific 
questions that are really legal in nature, you need to consult an attorney. Having said that, I will take broad questions. And the information, as we all know, during the time of the pandemic in particular, is dynamic and fluid. So you need to make sure that you continually check the various government agency websites and laws for updates. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, first, we're going to lead with some recent enforcement actions, including those involving business associate agreements. Next, we'll delve into the High Tech Act and HIPAA. Then we'll segue into the new 2019 HHS fact sheet. And you might be saying, well, Rachel, this is from 2019. What's new about this fact sheet? In reality, it's really the first significant update since 2013, and it really lays the foundation for our next section, the business associate agreement. From there, we'll delve into COVID and what it means for business associates and subcontractors, and we'll end up with some compliance nuggets, as I call them, as well as some takeaways for mitigating risk and other practical tips. So what are some recent enforcement actions and other timely topics? Well, first, typically on a regular basis, OCR provides enforcement updates on its website. And for those of you who are new to healthcare, OCR stands for the Office for Civil Rights, and that falls under the umbrella of the Department of Health and Human Services. So OCR has investigated and resolved over 28,000 cases by requiring changes in privacy practices and corrective actions by providing technical assistance to HIPAA-covered entities and their business associates. So what's important about this? Well, during the course of my practice, which as Catherine noted, it's pretty broad in scope. I've been very fortunate really to see HIPAA from a variety of angles. And the first angle is that I actually do the risk analyses for corporate clients and physician practices. So I've actually done those for business associates and covered entities alike. And there are nuances whenever you're doing a risk analysis that covered entities need to be aware of that don't necessarily apply to business associates. Why? Because typically, unless you're a hybrid covered entity, a business associate is not rendering care. So that's something to be aware of there. Having said that, there are a lot of nuances associated with the covered entity business associate relationship, but I'll delve into the main one later on. Secondly, I have represented both entities in front of OCR when they have received what I call the love letter. And the love letter means that OCR has launched an investigation. And sometimes, as the first paragraph says, they merely guide covered entities and business associates if there's a small issue. And as we saw at the end of 2019, in some instances, they've even given guidance, but the 
entities didn't follow through on the guidance, so then something happened, they received another complaint, they being OCR, and so they went back in and the entity ended up with a fine. So the first takeaway is if OCR is trying to help you, you really want to make sure that you are doing what they're telling you to do to become HIPAA compliant. Secondly, they can and do go after entities, as we'll see in the next couple of slides. And uh, it's important that if you are in a predicament, especially a ransomware attack type scenario, that you have really competent counsel because it gets very nuanced. And most of my discussions with OCR really delve into the law and the technical aspects. So I would encourage covered entities and business associates to hire outside counsel. And then finally, I have brought cases and I've negotiated contracts and I've actually helped defend entities too. So I've pretty much seen it from every angle. The corrective actions obtained by OCR from these entities have resulted in change that is systemic and that affects all the individuals they serve. So that's important as well because the bottom line is a fundamental right to privacy that is granted to all of us in the United States Constitution. OCR has successfully enforced HIPAA rules by applying corrective measures in all cases where an investigation indicates non-compliance by the covered entity or their business associate. So just because the entity wasn't fined does not mean that there were not costs associated with that non-compliance. And as an aside, another area that you really need to be conscious of is the class action lawsuit. And as we saw with Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, as well as community health systems, those can really be the most costly in terms of your legal expenses. And then typically OCR will come in and lob a fine on top of that. And Anthem's class action settled for approximately $115 million, and OCR then came in and levied $116 million, or $16 million penalty, excuse me. To date, OCR has settled or imposed civil monetary penalties in 75 cases, resulting in over $116 million. And they have investigated complaints against a variety of different entities. And what's fascinating is it's not only big entities or small entities, they actually find the state of Texas for not being compliant with the HIPAA rules. This is the most recent fine to be levied by HHS. And this happened at the very end of July of 2020. So basically, Lifespan Health Systems, affiliated covered entity, a not-for-profit health system based in Rhode Island, agreed to pay over a million dollars to OCR and to implement a corrective action plan. Corrective action plans can also be costly, so whenever you're looking at your risk management or enterprise risk management plan, you absolutely need to take into account all possible expenses related to a breach. Basically, the key takeaways here are it's hard to believe that in 2020, despite HIPAA coming out in 1996 and then the security rule becoming effective in 2005 and the omnibus rule becoming effective in January, 
well, it was published in the Federal Register in January of 2013, and the effective dates were March, and then compliance dates were September for most of the provisions of that same year. It's amazing to me that there are still so many issues associated with unencrypted laptops and USB drives. But on April 21st, Lifespan and its business associates. So here you have that corporate structure where the parent company and the business associate of Lifespan ACE actually called a penalty on itself, so to speak, and filed a breach report with OCR concerning the theft of an affiliated hospital employee's laptop containing EPHI. What's important here is the focus on the business associate. And it's not uncommon when you break down corporate structures to see a parent company be in a business associate relationship because of the type of interaction with a subsidiary company. So you really want to hone in and look at the corporate structure. Another key related item are the reports that have come out over the last few months regarding cyber attacks and the increase in those. In HIPAA terms, that's obviously malware, ransomware, and pretty much violating or taking an opportunity to exploit a vulnerability that becomes a threat and ultimately a breach. So here we see that the FBI indicated that between April 1 and April 30 of 2020, there was a 400% increase in cyber attacks. So that right there is crucial. And if you are a covered entity engaged in research and clinical trials, there was a recent statement indicating that they're finding more and more state actors, meaning foreign countries such as China and Russia, really honing in on those types of attacks. And an example of that was the arrest of the individual working at the Houston consulate. July 23rd, 2020, in juxtaposition to the example I just gave, where we had a fine of over a million dollars, this in fact relates to a small healthcare provider failing to implement multiple HIPAA security rule requirements. On June 9th of 2011, Metro filed a breach report regarding an impermissible disclosure of PHI to an unknown email account. So what's interesting is this was after the High Tech Act, but before the final omnibus rule. The breach affected over 1,200 patients. OCR's investigation revealed long-standing systemic non-compliance with the HIPAA security rule. And I'll give you my first-hand lens. They do, they meaning OCR, when their investigators really sink their teeth into something, they don't look at just the immediate breach. They go back in time and look at your history of compliance with the technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. So here specifically, Metro failed to conduct that golden risk analysis, failed to implement any HIPAA security rule policies and procedures, and neglected to provide workforce members with security awareness training until 2016. That is absolutely unbelievable. But what else is a little interesting about this particular enforcement action is that the report was made in June 2011. It took nearly nine years 
for that announcement to be made in a fine of 100000 to be levied. So these can take a long time, just as a lawsuit can take a long time. So you really need to prepare your clients if they get one of these letters or they self-disclose. May of 2019, a $3 million fine was assessed against Touchstone. And what's important here is first, we are honing in on that risk analysis again. Second, they fail to have business associate agreements in place with vendors, including their IT support vendor and a third-party data center provider as required by HIPAA. Again, this is so elementary to HIPAA compliance and those requisite technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. As I said before, it just blows my mind that people aren't implementing these fundamental elementary types of precautions and really regulatory requirements. But here the medical imaging company agreed to pay over $3 million and again to adopt that corrective action plan. A side note on that is, as we know, there are also what I call state HIPAA laws that are very similar to the federal HIPAA law. The federal HIPAA is used as the floor, so state laws cannot be less restrictive than federal HIPAA, but they can impose more restrictions, and we see that in Texas with the definition of a covered entity. So now that you have the lay of the land in terms of some of the items that HHS OCR focuses on, let's give a little background on HIPAA and the High Tech Act. So who is under the legal umbrella? Well, first we have covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors. Covered entities under federal HIPAA fall into three main buckets, which I've put up on the slide. Healthcare providers, health plans and healthcare clearinghouses. From there, a covered entity is in privity of contract with a business associate. And it's also notable that a business associate agreement is required between a covered entity and a business associate. From there, we have business associates in privity of contract with subcontractors or those entities that they contract with. Again, a business associate contract is required. Now, if we go back to some of the language in the various privacy rule regulations and rules that were set forth in the different federal register notices and rule actions, basically they refer to this as the link of trust. And I like to think of this as a linear relationship. And that is the covered entity, and then that link to the business associate, and then that link to the subcontractor. So that's a straight line. There are also other arrangements that one can get into, for example, where you have the covered entity at the top of what I call a, a triangle or a pyramid. So the covered entity would be at the top, and for example, if they are contracting with two separate business associates, they would have, going down the sides of that triangle, a business associate agreement with each of those. But the covered entity might say, hey, business associate one, you need to work with business associate two in order to accomplish whatever healthcare-related objective or business-related objective it is. 
that involves protected health information. Well, what you want to do is make sure that there is some type of agreement between BA1 and BA2, and that's to ensure that the requisite technical, administrative, and physical safeguards are met, that you know what you're going to do in the event of a breach and things of that nature. So that can be typically done in the format. Some people just do the business associate agreement. Others do a modified business associate agreement because of the type of relationship. Others do a data use agreement. But some of the key provisions are still required. And what you really want to make sure of is that you're getting those reasonable assurances. And I'll give you my top five items that I tell people to ask for down the line. Texas House Bill 300 has been in effect since September 1st of 2012. And the key here is twofold. First, it was codified in the Texas Health and Safety Code. And second, it was codified in the Business and Commerce Code. So those are the two places to look for the actual legal implementation of the legislation. But the key here is the different definition of a covered entity. So instead of limiting the covered entity to the federal HIPAA definition, they basically said in Texas, anyone, any person who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. Then we go into the Federal Trade Commission, and in a way, they fill the gap on the federal forefront because the Federal Trade Commission is tasked and has the authority to enforce under the Federal Trade Commission Act consumer rights protections. And that's absolutely crucial to remember because their breach notification rule is slightly different than federal HIPAA, but I'll delve into that in a moment. So here's some of the legislative history. August 1996, HIPAA is signed into law, and it comes about as the need for a consistent framework for transactions and other administrative items is coming more and more to the forefront. Interestingly, the Privacy Act of 1974 was already in place, and obviously that happened 22 years before. And then when you start looking at the substance abuse and mental Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, also known as SAMHSA, you start looking into the regs at 42 CFR Part 2, which for those who deal in this area in particular, it's typically known as Part 2. That law stems back to the mid-70s as well, and it arose out of the 1960s drug culture and the public policy behind wanting people to go and get treatment and medical help for various types of addiction without their privacy being violated and without having a stigma that was publicly known. So that's where the history stems from. I have the privacy rule August 14th of 2002 up here. The privacy rule itself was actually initially promulgated in December of 2000 in the Federal Register. And then we see what are known as interim rules or other corrections, so to speak, and that's what happened here. So although this was set forth in August of 2002, it became effective, in fact, in 2003. 
the security rule applies to electronic protective health information or EPHI only. Again, it was first published in the Federal Register on February 20th of 2003, but did not become effective from a compliance standpoint until 2005. A key difference between the privacy rule and the security rule is that the privacy rule applies to all forms of protective health information and the security rule applies to electronic protected health information. In 2002, we see the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act come into being, and that was part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. The breach notification rule comes into play in 2009, and as an aside there, there have been some changes which came about in April of 2019, whereby the four tiers of penalties underwent some changes. So the penalties are tiered in terms of tier one, tier two, tier three, and tier four. And tier one through three are the least severe types of actions and least severe types of knowledge requirement. And those all underwent major decreases, so to speak, in the penalty amount. Tier four remained at 1.5 million. So if you're heading in to that, that is something that is important. From there, we get into the 2010 privacy and security proposed regulations. And then finally, that omnibus rule. And I mentioned January of 2013. The citation for that is 78 Federal Register 5566, January 25th of 2013. And this is where a lot of business associates in particular and covered entities and subcontractors but really those business associates said oh crap we are now liable expressly liable and as i mentioned in one of the takeaways some entities feel that that liability for business associates actually goes back to the high tech act and that breach notification rule so it's interesting to look and see, but if you have an issue before uh, 2013, the odds are, as some of the enforcement actions have indicated, that they will go back and look at your compliance stemming all the way back sometimes to 2005. So there is a good faith basis for being nervous if you didn't have everything in place even before 2013. I mentioned the Federal Trade Commission Act and the FTC's health breach notification rule requires certain businesses not covered by HIPAA to notify their customers and others if there's a breach of unsecured, individually identifiable electronic health information. This cannot be understated. This really not only applies to HIPAA entities, but as an aside, FTC has brought enforcement actions against HIPAA covered entities and business associates as well, stemming back to at least 2009, and their penalties have been in the millions. So three examples are Rite Aid, CVS, and more recently, Henry Schein Dental 
EHR. So let me delve into this 2019 HHS fact sheet. As I mentioned from the outset, although 2019 is not brand new, like hot off the press, it is relevant in that it was the first release of a fact sheet in over six years that related specifically to a new fact sheet on direct liability of business associates under HIPAA. And I need to enforce something here. Fact sheets and guidance are just that, they're guidance. And if you start to delve into a variety of areas of law and government agencies, OSHA, for example, says, even in relation to COVID, this is guidance and it's not actionable under the law. What's relevant here is that OCR did this handy little fact sheet but you can go directly to the security rule, which is actionable under the law, and find these provisions, which I'm going to delve into, in the actual law. So therefore, this isn't just guidance. What they've done is given a quick overview and then something that business associates should really take to heart and follow and make sure that they are checking off all of these boxes. So in 2013, and this is key because of the title of the presentation, under the authority granted by the High Tech Act, OCR issued a final rule, and that's that omnibus rule that I've mentioned a couple of times, that among other things, identified provisions of the HIPAA rules that apply directly to business associates and for which business associates are directly liable. So what is OCR's authority against business associates? Well, as we mentioned, they have the same authority to take enforcement action against business associates as they do against covered entities, but their authority is limited to those requirements and prohibitions of the HIPAA rules that appear on the following list. And I pulled some key items, but there are several others, and I encourage you to visit that link on the previous slide, and you'll find a list of all of them. So first, failure to comply with the re requirements of the security rule. Well, for anyone who's ever done a security rule risk analysis, you know that there are hundreds of items in the security rule. So you may be thinking, oh, well, this isn't that bad. There's only, eh, what, 15 items on the list. Well, each of these items has a lot of sub items, and that's the key part. Again, the security rule is really interested in protecting the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of that sensitive EPHI and making sure that the technical, administrative, and physical safeguard requirements are met. Failure to provide a breach notification to a covered entity or another business associate. Business associate does include subcontractors, but I always like to separate them out so that it's expressed. Impermissible use and disclosures of PHI, that should go without saying. Failure to disclose a copy of electronic PHI to either the covered entity the individual or the individual designee, and again, related to this presentation, whichever is 
specified in the business associate agreement. So what does that mean? Well, for years, I've worked with my clients when we refine or draft business associate agreements. And if my client happens to be a covered entity, I'll say, okay, if the breach occurs on your end, then who are you going to notify? You have to notify HHS and you have to notify your business associates. That's important to make sure, especially with a ransomware attack, that it was contained and it did not go and infect another entity system or if it's a phishing email or another form of malware. So that's very, very important there. Conversely, if I'm representing a business associate, I'll say, really, the onus is on the covered entity to provide that individual with a copy of their records. If they are contracting with you, it's better that the patient go through the covered entity and then they refer it to you to fulfill rather than having the individual contact you directly. And what happens there is that the language is very expressed saying that in the event that the business associate is contacted by the individual, it will notify the covered entity within 24 hours or if it's a Friday the following Monday and tell them that a request for a designated health records that are billing has been made along those lines. And then from there, they go through the appropriate steps with the covered entity to fill out all of the requisite forms. And then the covered entity sends those to the business associate. And that just keeps everything clean. Also on the breach notification, I've had situations where the business associate agreed to notify HHS directly, but it also means you have to notify the covered entity as well. So that can't be a one-way street. The most prudent way to do it is probably to notify the covered entity and have them notify HHS with an explanation of what transpired, that the covered entity was not the source of the breach. They were notified by the business associate and they're taking the appropriate steps under the breach notification rule. But there are different ways to do it, but you need to absolutely make sure that it is spelled out line by line in the business associate agreement. Otherwise, that is an area that HHS questions and indicates whether or not you are in compliance. And that's where earlier I mentioned hiring competent counsel because the nuances of the laws that they really drill down into are just that they are quite nuanced and you need to make sure that your attorney is responding accurately because there are exceptions there are other issues that can and do arise and i actually had this happen when dealing with ocr they said well the covered entity is supposed to report the breach and i specifically referenced the cfr and said well in this instance and here's a copy of the business associate agreement that was not contracted to between the parties and that resolved it. Otherwise, both entities could have been in trouble ostensibly for not following the law. Failure to make reasonable efforts to limit PHI to the minimum necessary to accomplish the intended purpose of the use, disclosure, or request. Minimum necessary should be in any person's 
vocabulary, who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. And finally, failure to enter into business associate agreements with subcontractors that create, receive, maintain, or transmit PHI on their behalf and failure to comply with the implementation specifications for such agreements. Typically, the implementation specifications in these agreements include those rules, the privacy rule, security rule, breach notification rule, things of that nature. So let's delve into the business associate agreement. Well, here we have the content of the business associate agreement. First and foremost, you need to know who you are doing business with, whether a covered entity or a subcontractor. And a few moments ago, I mentioned that I have my clients do a less than one page attestation that the other entity signs. And what they ask five basic questions. And if people don't answer these questions as checking all the boxes, I would be trepidatious to enter into an agreement with them. So the five questions are, do you undergo an annual risk analysis? Do you have comprehensive policies and procedures that are reviewed on at least an annual basis? Do you require annual HIPAA and security training of your workforce? Next, is your data encrypted at rest and in transit? And lastly, do you have business associate agreements in place with the entities that you need to have them in place with? If people answer no to those, then that's a red flag, and I would really drill down on those issues. Indemnification clauses, what's important here is that they're not required under the security rule, and if you look at the HHS fact sheet, that is not one of the requisite items, not the fact sheet from 2019, but their previous fact sheets on business associate agreements. I'm seeing a lot of them and have for a long time. This is a completely separate webinar, but there are nuances of indemnification clauses that you have to hone in on. And I have a couple slides dedicated to that in this presentation. Choice of law, form, and venue doesn't match your main contract and your other contracts. Otherwise, that is one area that entities will absolutely hone in on in the event of a legal proceeding. Who notifies HHS and the state agency equivalent? We just addressed that on the previous slide. And who pays for the notifications to patients, the media, and government entities, especially in the event of a breach that includes more than 500 individuals? Cloud computing is something to be conscious of as well. What access does the cloud entity have to your data? And in fact, you are required to have a business associate agreement with a cloud computing entity. Are you using a platform as a service, an infrastructure as a service, or a software as a service cloud application? Does the cloud company use at least 256-bit encryption and is a BAA signed? All of those are absolutely critical. The other item to look at is where your data is stored, because if it is stored outside of the United States, lo and behold, you just open yourself up to the laws of other countries, and that's something to be very, very conscious of. 
as well as state laws such as Arizona, which really prohibit the offshoring of certain duties related to protected health information. So you need to be very, very conscious of those types of nuances. Parents and subsidiaries go back to that lifespan, recent enforcement action. What is the corporate structure is something you should really hone in on. And a few of my clients who have a more elaborate corporate structure, we've had business associate agreements put in place and they're worded differently than some of the ones that are used with other business associates because of the relationship between the parent and the business associate. So just be very aware of refining your business associate agreement. Is this a hybrid covered entity or two distinct cor corporate entities? So are we talking about divisions within a company or are we talking about two distinct corporate entities? So common contracts where indemnification provisions emerge, we see these in master service agreements, service level agreements. These are very tech-oriented statement of work, business associate agreements, and asset purchase agreements. All of this is very, very important. So what is the business associate definition? I've mentioned it throughout the program. However, I really want to give that express statement of what it is coming out of the privacy rules and security rules. A business associate is a person or entity other than a member of the workforce of a covered entity who performs functions or activities on behalf of or provides certain services to a covered entity that involve access by the business associate to protected health information. And as I indicated earlier, business associates include a lot of different entities. Lawyers can be a business associate. Accountants can be a business associate. A person that offers a personal health record to one or more individuals on behalf of a covered entity a subcontractor that creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. And one area to really hone in on, especially in light of the 21st Century Cures Act, is an app developer and their relationship, not only to the covered entity, but also potentially to the electronic health record. A business associate agreement, covered entities may not disclose protected health information, the business associates or allow business associates to use PHI unless the parties have executed a business associate agreement. End of story. And that's why HHS really honed in on this. A business associate agreement is a contract. Therefore, it is actionable under state contract laws. And typically, this is one of the items that we find in class action suits and other areas there. CAs have the same obligation to have agreements in place with subcontractors. What is a BAA? A contract. It's required under HIPAA and several items must be included. So take out your pens and write this, these down. Establishment of permitted use and required disclosures and uses, non-disclosure of information, appropriate technical, administrative, and physical safeguards in order to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of that data as required by all of the parties to the agreement, 
breach notification rule. Again, as I mentioned on those previous slides, you need to have a plan in place. Require elements found in both the privacy and the security rules, as well as any other items such as defining who the entities are. If you're labeling someone as a covered entity, make sure that you define covered entity in your definition section because as we saw, covered entity under federal HIPAA is defined differently than a covered entity under the state of Texas. So just be sure that you're making express provisions for those types of nuances. So what is indemnification? Because although it's not required, like I said, this is one that a lot of entities put in the contract. A provision in a contract that represents the transfer of risk between the parties. And indemnification can be mutual, i.e. E or EG, the same terms apply to both parties, or unilateral, one party has the benefit. The circumstances dictate the type of indemnification, make sure that you have done adequate due diligence in order to assess the risk before agreeing to indemnification. Indemnify versus hold harmless. We have indemnify, solely protects against losses, hold harmless, protects against losses and liability. And then you have protect, and protect is different depending on what definition that you use. Defend means the contractor will provide the upstream party with a legal defense. And so you need to really look at what you're putting into that indemnification provision because it can really open up your expenses as well as your potential liability. If it's unilateral, that's typically problematic and I discourage that, especially if you don't have a history of course of dealings with the entity. A lot of entities try and make it unilateral so that their company is completely indemnified and all the liability falls on the other party, but common sense should tell you that that's probably not the best route to go. Is indemnification a required provision in a BAA? Absolutely not, and I can't reinforce that enough. So let's look at COVID for a moment because it means a lot for business associates and subcontractors in terms of liability. And a question that I'm asked often is whether or not HHS, when they stated they were going to loosen or really use discretion in their authority to enforce these privacy and security rules, whether that means they're just going to turn a blind eye. And I have to say no. And it's because the bulletins that HHS set forth require those who are telecommuting, who are in the regular course of business to continue using the security role and to continue to meet those privacy rule exceptions, which have been in place now for approximately 18 to 20 years. When HHS promulgated the privacy rule as well as the security rule, they really took into account a variety of different circumstances which can and do arise, including emergency situations, public health issues, 
disasters. And that's why under the security role in your policies and procedures, as well as there's a separate line item in the security role, you absolutely have to have a business continuity plan as well as a disaster recovery plan. So all of that is absolutely critical. A COVID-19 overview. I'm just hitting the highlights here because it's important and you may want to put certain provisions in your contracts relating to COVID in general. It was first reported in China in late 2019. The World Health Organization declared a pandemic on March 11th of 2020. From there, the president declared a national emergency on March 13th of 2020. Common signs of infection include respiratory symptoms, fever, cough, shortness of breath, and breathing difficulties. In more severe cases, as we know, infection can cause pneumonia, severe acute respiratory syndrome, kidney failure, and even death. And I'm gonna sidestep here for a moment. Whenever I do training for my clients, and then interview the various levels of employees throughout their organization. The one question that I ask is, what is, and I, it depends on how I ask the question, but what is the most extreme ramification of not complying with the security role and undergoing a ransomware attack? Another way to phrase that is, is death possible in the event of a ransomware attack. And it's interesting because my covered entities really get it. My business associate who I train annually, at first, a, a lot of them said no, but then they stopped and they thought and they said, you know what, not for us, but for our covered entities, yes. And they are exactly right. So that's why if you stop and think about treatment and what healthcare's fundamental purpose is, not having access or availability or having the integrity of a medical record disrupted is absolutely problematic because you don't know the symptoms a patient has, you don't know the last time they received a dose of a drug or a respiratory treatment, and you do not know what their drug-drug interactions are. So absolutely, it can be problematic, and that's why even during COVID, adhering to the privacy rule and the security rule is so important because it can, in fact, impact patient outcomes. Following up on that, the virus is now known as the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, also known as SARS-CoV-2 for short. The disease it causes is called coronavirus disease 2019 or COVID-19. I like to think of this like HIV and AIDS and the relationship between those two particular viruses. Basically what you have is HIV is the underlying virus which can cause the end stage disease known as AIDS. So that's just a way to think of those two items. So a couple of general items that are relevant to COVID and during the pandemic. First and foremost, the HIPAA privacy rule and the security rule are still applicable during this pandemic. That can't be overstated or highlighted enough. The privacy rule has always had an exception for healthcare providers to report certain diseases or conditions 
of an individual patient, the various state and federal government agencies, such as the State Department of Health and Human Services or to the CDC. So this is nothing new and it perplexed me because I received not only a lot of inquiries, but also I was interviewed by the Washington Times and a couple of other news outlets about this. And their question was, can an entity give information to first responders? Yes, as long as they use the minimum necessary standard. And a lot of times those first responder entities were not even asking who specifically in a household, for example, had COVID. They just wanted to know if someone had it or if they had been exposed to someone who had it. That was it. So you really can't get more minimally necessary than what they were asking for. Again, it is within the purview of a covered entity to provide protected health information of a communicable disease status to these public health entities and also to various organizations such as potentially UNICEF or the American Red Cross who are keeping track of these in order to carry out their functions in terms of their charters and their role in interaction with these public health authorities. The transmission of the patient's information still needs to occur in accordance with the security rule. So if you are reporting COVID cases and specific patient names to the CDC, you need to make sure that you are doing it in a secure manner. Well, I've mentioned the minimum necessary rule throughout the presentation, and it is because it shows up everywhere in HIPAA, the High Tech Act, all of the interim rules, the final rule. You have to use the minimum necessary information to accomplish the purpose of what you are doing. So covered entities may rely on representations from public health authorities or other public health officials that the requested information is the minimum necessary for the purpose when that reliance is reasonable under the circumstances. And a couple of examples are a covered entity can rely on what the CDC says that they need to send in. They can also rely on information by the CDC about all patients exposed to or suspected or confirmed to have the novel coronavirus, which is COVID-19, as the previous slide said. It's written in different ways, so that's why I gave you a couple of different examples of how the nomenclature and the acronym may change. In addition, internally, covered entities should continue to apply their role-based access. This is important because it not only applies to covered entities, but also to business associates and to subcontractors. And role-based access, if you go back and look at that May 2019 data breach and the violation that I highlighted, the $3 million enforcement action, this was one of those issues, the role-based access. So telehealth versus telecommuting, on March 17th of 2020, the HHS Office for Civil Rights announced that it will waive potential HIPAA penalties for good faith use of telehealth during the nationwide public health emergency due to COVID-19. Effective immediately, this exercise of discretion 
applies to telehealth provided for any reason, regardless of whether the telehealth service is related to the diagnosis and treatment of health conditions related to COVID-19. Communication technology considerations between covered entities and patients. First, you have those which are permissible. And now we're into telehealth, more specifically telemedicine versus telecommuting. Telecommuting, as we know, occurs across a large spectrum of industries. It's not specific to HIPAA and a lot of laws, whether they're state laws or they are other federal laws, such as GLOBA, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which deals with financial institutions, personally identifiable information, which is sensitive as well, you need to make sure that you're adhering to those technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. End of story. And transitioning to remote working should have been in place in business continuity plans and disaster recovery plans already. So this should not have been a big deal for any covered entity or business associate. Now, the telemedicine is a different animal, and that is a specific communication between a provider and a patient. And that falls into three main buckets. Telemedicine, which is a telecommunication which has both an audio and a visual component to it. Then you have e-visits and check-ins. The latter two are reimbursed at a lower amount, but they can be done over the phone only. So if you are utilizing those codes, make sure that you're not upcoding because that is an area that HHS, OIG, and the Department of Justice will not give a pass on. It's imperative that if you are a provider that you are in fact documenting the type of entity that you're using. And if you have a well-integrated EHR system, see if they have an app or another type of solution that's available that really connects it to that electronic health record or automatically uploads some form of documentation because you're going to need it to establish medical necessity. So again, you want to use the permissible ones on the screen and not the non-permissible because that's outward facing and no type of interaction between a provider and a patient should be open for the world to see. The February 2020 bulletin really hasn't changed. HHS has issued subsequent bulletins for further refinement for items such as I previously mentioned the first responders. But in general, no one can release patient information to the media or to the public at large regarding an individual patient's information related to treatment of an identifiable patient. That specifically requires a written authorization. And the reality is, if you're a business associate, more likely than not, you do not have it. So that's something to be conscious of there. I've mentioned the other part of this, and this I want to emphasize because this really impacts business associates and subcontractors. In an emergency situation, Covered entities, as well as the business associates and subcontractors, must continue to implement reasonable safeguards to protect that PHI against intentional or unintentional 
impermissible uses or disclosures and must apply those technical, administrative, and physical safeguards to electronic protected health information. So as we round the final turn of our presentation today, here are some key compliance nuggets, as I like to call them. First, I look at the fruit basket, and I call it the fruit basket because of Roger Severino's comments. He is the director of OCR. These are found in a February 3rd, 2020 Law 360 article. For enforcement purposes, there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit. And throughout the presentation, I've identified a lot of those areas, not only for covered entity, but really for anyone who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. Next, there are a lot of entities that are not doing the basics. As I said, this is frustrating. For me, and I'm always floored whenever I get a call from a new client where they say, I've received an OCR notice, and when we start going through things, they had very little of the safeguards in place. It's, it's just mind-blowing. They're not implementing the proper controls on access to patient records. This is key. Clouding of a statutory duty, a wide variety of areas where entities have had breaches and have not uh, reported to us those breaches. That's key. And if you look at September through December of 2019, you really see some enforcement actions related to this. If HIPAA enforcers unearth hidden breaches, then covered entities may be accused of sweeping it under the rug and should expect more vigorous enforcement. Again, I mentioned this earlier in the presentation and look to those enforcement actions specifically in Florida from September through December of 2019. PHI needs to be protected, which means that fundamental risk analysis on the front end is crucial. Types of violations, here are some of the items that they really hone in on in addition to what I mentioned before. Stealing protected health information can also have, in fact, implications under the False Claims Act, and that is something everyone should strive to avoid. Employees and contractors looking at information where they're not part of the team or they're not authorized to do so. This goes back to those access controls that we saw. And then external security breaches, ransomware attacks include MedStar and Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center, and then failing to update patches in community health systems 2014 example is something to hone in on there. So what are the takeaways before I take any questions? Well, first, you want to evaluate DAAs in the context of both federal and state laws. From there, performing an annual risk analysis is the first step to identifying vulnerabilities, mitigating risk, and increasing compliance. A DAA is a contract, and that can't be stated enough. Both business associates and subcontractors have been under the purview of express liability for years. Some would argue when the final omnibus rule came out. Others would argue before that when High Tech Act passed. And I'm one who would say it stems back even before High Tech Act passed because it was implied in the privacy rule and in some of those enforcement actions when you start going back a few years, HHS did in fact go back to the 2005, which is the security rule. So that's 
how far back they can and do often go, depending on the length of the relationship between the parties. Staying abreast of guidance, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as executive orders and actual changes in the law. So with that, I want to thank you, Catherine, again for having me, and I'll open the floor to any questions. Okay, thank you so much, Rachel. I very much appreciate it. That was a very comprehensive webinar, and we do have a few questions, so thank you so much. Sure. So the first question we have is, are indemnification provisions required in BAAs? Absolutely not. And that's something that I've iterated and reiterated throughout the actual presentation because it's something that you see a lot and it's a very important provision, but no, it's not a requirement. Okay. All right. Good. Well, it's, uh, it's an important thing to, to just reiterate, so thank you. Um, okay, here's another one. Uh, are there other types of cases which could give rise to liability in addition to an OCR fine for not having a business associate agreement in place? Yes, that is one of the areas where the uh, business associate agreement is a focus for HHS OCR. It's also one of the reasons I have my clients put that in one of their five items. Okay. All right. Um, okay, here's a good one. Um, is the BAA a contract? Yes, it absolutely is a contract. It's binding and you can find yourself in a contract claim in court over it. Oftentimes, you have to read that contract in pari materia with your other contracts. And again, it's imperative to make sure that your choice of law, choice of venue, choice of forum, and the indemnification clauses are in fact identical. Oftentimes, I see situations where they're not. And as anyone can imagine, that is an area that is ripe for litigation. Okay. All right. Oh, I always like these types of questions. Um, what are the top three items in the 2019 HHS fact sheet for business associates to focus on? If they had, top, uh -huh. if they had three things to focus on, what would you recommend? Absolutely, that risk analysis, which not only comes up there, but the OCR director highlighted that in his 2020 article with Law 360. So that's first. Second is the business associate agreement. That's another item. And lastly, it's compliance with the security rule. Okay. All right. So the top three items. All right. All right. What is the key to avoiding government actions as well as lawsuits? Um, okay. And um, okay, so if you could answer, if you could answer that. Sure. What is the key to avoiding government actions and lawsuits? First right. and foremost, it's compliance and risk mitigation. A good way to do that is to adopt an enterprise risk management strategy. And depending on the size of the organization, that type of um, enterprise risk management program will vary. 
Having said that, that annual risk analysis really helps in the mitigation because you're reviewing and refining and seeing where perhaps you were okay one year, but you noticed that there were a lot of impermissible accesses the next year that were caught on your logs. So that's why that annual risk analysis is crucial as well. Okay. Um, what about, um, I mean, it seems like, it seems like organizations should, should also um, get some of that, you know, low fr hanging fruit. What about, what about that? Low hanging fruit again, as the OCR director indicated, it, it all stems from the risk analysis because you're looking at making sure the PHI and EPHI are kept in a confidential and available and in integrity is intact in those types of data. So I would say that that's absolutely crucial in relation to the technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. That can't be overstated. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Do you do you have anything else that you've you've thought of, or or any other words of advice that you wanted to to leave with us today as we wrap up? No, not at all. Other than again, it's always my pleasure to collaborate with you, Catherine, and first health care compliance in general. And I look forward to our next event. Okay, wonderful. Well, um, I look forward to it as well, and. Um, want to make sure to remind our attendees that you can download these slides. Um, remember, it's it's either on the side of your screen or on the upper part of your screen. There's a button to download the slides, so you have all the information with you. Um, and uh, thank you again so much, Rachel, and thank you, attendees. Uh, please, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rachel. Sorry about that. Oh no, I I have nothing else other than to hope that everyone remains safe and healthy. Great, me too, me too. So uh, attendees, please use the contact on the uh, information on the screen for any questions, uh, or if you send us questions later, we can forward them on to Rachel. Please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast automatically. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.